1: This is the morning run, and you're with Julian Joyce and Sharitz. Now, the EPF has declared a six and a quarter percent dividend rate for conventional savings and five point nine percent for Sharia savings. Uh, this is understandably lower than twenty uh, seventeen numbers of six point nine percent and six point four percent, respectively, for conventional and Sharia.
0: Yes, uh, but however, it's good to look into what uh, the real dividend and also the nominal uh, dividends are. Um, they Uh, at the 3.93% for conventional saving and at 3.68% for Sharia saving on a rolling three-year basis. This exceeded the mandate of dividend of 2.5%, real dividend of 2%.
1: I think yeah, it's important to uh, have the returns after inflation, right? Uh, that's where the uh, real rate of dividend comes in. I uh, recall that the government has a statutory guarantee of EPF dividends uh, to, uh, I think, two and a half percent is the stat stat guarantee, um, and EPF themselves uh, have a real dividend target of at least, uh, sorry, two and a half percent. Government guarantee is just two percent, uh, so EPF has achieved that, uh, but you know, um, per. Personally, people have different personal rates of inflation so this may uh, come in handy
2: I must say that when they've announced this uh, uh, dividend rate I think it was um, better than some had expected I think they were already managing the information you know a couple of weeks managing couple of months before that yeah, yeah, saying right. that you know dividend rate for 2018 uh, is going to be lower than 2017 turned out is not as bad as, what, as some had expected I think it has to do a lot with also what EPF did in a couple of years uh, in the past previous years they were rebalancing in their portfolio. This was under Dato Sharil Rizwan. Now he's uh, hitting Kazana. But what they did was they started um, investing more overseas and that seems to have helped.
0: Yes, and uh, I mean it's worth to also ask as to why a lower sh- there is a lower income for uh, Sharia, where um, apparently it's uh, as a result of the underperformance of several sectors, for example, telecommunication, construction, also oil and gas sector uh, in the domestic portfolio.
1: Yeah, I think it makes it makes sense because uh, Sharia excludes uh, banking stocks out of the portfolio and therefore lower risk, uh, perhaps lower returns. Uh, we uh, want to watch this over the years. Uh, it's good that this data is available so that it can give us a clue of uh, whether sharia and uh, sharia underperforms or outperforms or whether those returns will converge but i think people are still trying to work out the very good uh, sort of dividends, right? Six and a quarter percent. Because if you look at the performances last year of the various asset classes, I mean, the S&P 500 was just up four and a half percent there about in 2018. KLCI was down uh, six percent. So how uh, did you come up with the six and a quarter percent, right? So
2: it'll be interesting to see um, something to ask EPF when they have that press conference, when they do on their their earnings. But uh, EPF, their total assets, that's over 830 billion ringgit. About nearly half of them, 51%, is in fixed income instruments. 36% is in Equities and ten percent in real estate, as well as infrastructure, and three percent is in the money market instrument.
0: Yeah, and uh, with regards to their gross uh, investment income, it's about forty. Sorry, about fifty point nine billion uh, total worth um, and fixed income instrument, comprising Malaysian uh, of thirty six point one percent is comprised of Malaysian government securities and equivalent and loan and uh, loans and bond contributed to about eighteen point four billion real estate infrastructure at four point one. Uh, Two four uh 4.1% to 2.1 billion in uh money market instrument 2.2 at 1.12 uh, billion. I think
1: in um explaining that 6 and a quarter percent of note are also some of EPF's uh, biggest local holdings uh, for example RHB Bank they have about 9 billion uh, uh, in that company uh, that rose 10% so that kind of like exceeded the 6 and a quarter percent uh, that conventional paid but uh, Malaysian Building Society uh, I think the next biggest holding Four and a quarter billion that fell about 2%. Um, Telecom Malaysia, in which uh, they hold about 1.8 billion ringgit uh, worth of investments, Telecom Malaysia fell 54%. So, which raises uh, further the puzzle of the six and a quarter mm. percent. Mm. Now, incidentally, um, the CEO of the new CEO, rather, or CEO. Uh, EPF Tunku Ali Zakri Raja Muhammad Alias has joined the board of Astro in which Astro holds uh, there about an 8.1% stake. Now, uh, the other news that we have is Kazana because there was an exclusive interview uh, uh, between Dato Shari Rizza Rizwan, the new uh, CEO of Kazana, uh, with The itch where Sharil has said that functions uh, the, the Kazana funds uh, would be split into uh, two functions. One is a traditional uh, sovereign wealth fund role, which is focused on the long-term growth of its assets, and the other, having a developmental or strategic role for the government creating the right infrastructure and environment for Malaysia's economic growth.
0: So yeah, what is the difference between the old and the new Kazana? Now, going forward, uh, Kazana's portfolio will see a 7 30 split between commercial basket and strategic basket. Now, 70% in this commercial basket, they include moneymakers, uh, companies such as Asiata, CIMB, UEM, and IHH Healthcare. And 30% in the strategic b- baskets uh, are nation builders for countries' development. And this uh, includes companies like TM, Tanaga National, Malaysian Airlines, uh, Malaysian Airlines, and Malaysian Airports. The, st- the 30% strategic ones are not for sale assets, whereas the moneymakers in the 70 70- Percent could be sold if they are maxed out.
2: Also interesting to note is that our previous management was focused on GLC transformation and regionalization of Malaysian companies. But Cheryl says Kazana needs to start moving on from that as a lot of work needs to be done. So he also says that um, you know, given the current portfolio constraints, Kazana is looking at achieving three percent returns above inflation over a rolling five year period. And uh, it's interesting as well that he said that you know, Kazana isn't selling to raise money to settle. Well, that it is rebalancing its portfolio because the portfolio currently is too highly concentrated with regards to Malaysian exposure and they should really have more global exposure, exposure. So it looks like they are looking to rebalance their portfolio as well and looking to invest more globally.
1: Yeah. So the- it's interesting that the 3% returns uh, target, it's about what uh, EPF wants uh, to do as well. Uh, EPF is also around two and a half, three percent 3% above inflation and Kazana is doing that. But the difference is that uh, according to Sharon Kazana is committed to paying out 1 billion ringgit per annum in dividends to the government. Now, 1 billion over Kazana's fund size of about 150 billion is only a 0.6, 0.6 or 0.7% dividend yield. EPF pays uh, 10 times more dividends than that. So there you go.
0: And uh, just to add on, I think uh, earlier when it was saying, when Joyce was saying that it was highly concentrated in Malaysia and uh, going global, I think it was also written in the article where the um, investment will be sort of uh, looked into a long term I think about 10 years um, gradually rather than everything uh, you know everything being focused in, in the very immediate uh, uh, future and uh, also on Malaysian Airlines, uh, they, apparently they will stay on Kazana, Kazana's books. Uh, Cheryl is is uh, part of Kazana's strategy. Says that it is part of Kazana's strategic portfolio because it serves a fundamental purpose for the Malaysian economy in terms of being the national carrier and uh, promoting tourism.
2: Interesting. So I wonder whether or not they're still going ahead with um, they'll look into IPO ipo uh, Malaysian Airlines and how, uh, with regards to the profit and loss of Malaysian Airlines, you know, are they making money already? It'll be interesting to follow up on that. Also, another interesting thing that Cheryl said was they want to manage costs better. So, for example, the IHH deal, there was no investment banking fees on that because they actually did it in-house.
1: Okay, mm. uh, trying to be a low-cost sovereign wealth fund, no-frills sovereign wealth yeah, fund. Uh, I right. wonder whether they will start closing up their overseas offices. Okay, uh, now Now let's turn our attention uh, to uh, Singapore. Singapore is going to announce a budget uh, today, uh, and the Singapore economy exp- expanded by uh, 3.2% in 2018, slowing down from 2017. Uh, the Ministry of Trade and Industry also maintains its 2019 growth forecast uh, at one5 uh, to 3.5%, is always a range with Singapore. Uh, and so uh, this budget might have implications for the upcoming elections in a couple of years' time. So we have on. Underline Chua Hak Bin, who is Senior Economist at May Banking Research in Singapore, to comment on expectations. Um, Hak Bin, thanks for joining us. Uh, can you give us some preliminary thoughts on what uh, you think will be in store for the budget this afternoon?
3: Hi, good morning. Um, yeah, um, the expectations are pretty high. Um, I think the expectations of that the budget will be generous and expansionary. Um, setting the stage for a possible early general election. Uh, elections doesn't actually have to be held until um, 20, early 2021, but I think uh, you know there is some ongoing talk that it could be late this year or or next year. Um, so the focus um, centerpiece will be the Medicare Generation Package, essentially um, you know um, care for those born in the 1950s. So that's quite a large number, about you know. About Half uh, five thousand uh, Singaporeans, and I think the package could cost as much as uh, eight billion. So somewhat similar to the nine billion pioneer generation package um, that was introduced about uh, three four years ago. So that's uh, this is quite a big plus. Um, one of the one of the things about Singapore is that um, the current government cannot spend, uh, cannot run a deficit essentially within within the term of government. So what it tends to do is that um, accumulates its savings surpluses in the first few years. And then tends to uh, spend in the in the last one or two years in the lead-up to elections. So this is actually the third year of government, and the accumulated fiscal surplus for the first three years is actually about 19 billion, which is uh, pretty substantial. So plenty of room for the government to be to be um, yeah. dishing out goodies. I think both for um, both for the carpets as well some of the smaller SMEs, as well as um, as well as for the low-income and middle-income uh, middle households.
2: Hangbin, you're saying that you're expecting a lot of goodies from this uh, coming upcoming budget. So you're not expecting any new taxes?
3: Um, we are not expecting new taxes. Or uh, increase? Like, yeah, the taxes, um, the GST increase, is, um, as highlighted in the previous budget, is probably scheduled for 2021 to 2025. Mm-hmm. Five. So it's after the, yeah it's, it's actually in the next term of government. And I think guidance there is that um, there will be an increase in GST from the current 7% to 9%. Um, still somewhat controversial because it's not sure whether it's absolutely necessary. You know, the, uh, the government has a huge pool of fiscal reserves. Um, you know, um, it's a top secret number, but I think it's pretty, pretty large and has been contributing for the substantial to the budget. Um, so... Um, when we look at the income tax collection for this fiscal year, both the corporate income tax as well as the personal income tax is actually coming far ahead of uh, projections. Uh, corporate income tax growing about 8.7 percent, personal income tax growing about 7.7 percent in the first eight months. Stamp duties as well. You know, um, as you know, Singapore has pretty high stamp duties on properties. Uh, that's growing about eight percent. Um, so, so it looks as if. Um, it will be a beat, essentially, you know, it will uh, be a smaller fiscal deficit. So, so judging from revenue behavior and the spending side is actually falling a bit short. Um, some of the projected infrastructure spending on development spending um, only rose like 7% versus a budget at 24%. I think some of the delays perhaps in the Malaysia cross-border transport infra plans may be one reason. Um, so, um, yeah, so no, so no plan taxes, I think, is expected uh, in this budget. Uh, but the government has guided for possible future GST increases, largely because of the very strong increases in spending on healthcare and social spending in the last uh, five, six years.
1: Thanks so much for your thoughts. And that was Chua Hak bin Senior Economist at Maybank Kimbing Research in Singapore. Now it's coming up to the 9 a.m. news. And after that, we'll bring you reports from Bursa, Malaysia. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast.